developing a profile of the Sarnayev brothers today, Tuesday, April 23rd. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. They may have acted alone, but do the Boston bombing suspects fit a common terrorist profile? They're almost always young men with a lot of energy, a lot of frustrations. They want to do something. They don't know what. And that often leads to a lot of alienation. Also, how young Muslim Americans are coping in the aftermath. I feel more sad that somebody would be driven to do this than I do feel angry at the way that they make Muslims look. And later, a positive side effect to the banking crisis in Iceland. People have been forced to realize that money isn't everything and we have to enjoy non-material things in our lives. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The youngest victim of last week's Boston Marathon bombings was laid to rest today. Eight-year-old Martin Richard was buried after a private funeral. A second funeral for the MIT campus police officer allegedly killed by the bombing suspects last Friday was held today as well. The lone surviving suspect, Jokar Tsarnaev, remains in the hospital. At this point, officials reportedly believe he and his older brother, Tamerlan, acted alone, without support from any terrorist organization. But investigators are still digging into the suspect's past to find out why. Christopher Dickey thinks past attacks offer a pattern when it comes to the behavior of the perpetrators. Dickey is Paris bureau chief and Middle East editor for Newsweek and the Daily Beast. He says terrorists, whether homegrown, international, or a hybrid, share certain characteristics. First of all, they're almost always young men. There's always, almost always this, what you might call the testosterone issue. They're young men with a lot of energy, a lot of frustrations. They want to do something. They don't know what. And that often leads to a lot of alienation. Then you have them identifying with a narrative. And this is a point where there's usually a lot of confusion. People think that they're identifying with Islam or they're identifying with wars of national liberation. To some extent, they are. But what they're really doing is identifying themselves with the idea of rescuing an oppressed people. And they don't have to be oppressed themselves. I think if you look at the records of terrorists, like, for instance, the 7-7 bombers in London, they were not oppressed themselves, but they felt that they were carrying out terrorist acts in some ways to help liberate the oppressed people of Iraq or Afghanistan or what have you. And, of course, there's a long, long history of people fighting to liberate Irish territory or liberate Palestinian territory and so on. So that narrative is very important because it's almost chivalric. Uh, these people see themselves as knights in shining armor. Mm. What do you think the narrative was for the Sarnayev brothers? I think the Sarnayev brothers uh, were a classic reflection of this. First of all, particularly the older one, Tamerlan. He was a boxer. He was an athlete. He had a lot of, of juice, if you will. And he was a very frustrated guy uh, who came from a people, the Chechens, uh, but also in a broader sense, the people of the Caucasus, who have been invaded, occupied, deracinated to a large extent, oppressed. And yet he grew up in the relative privilege of the United States uh, from the time he was a, a young teenager. So that's actually a classic case. You have the combination of 
the narrative of the oppression of these Muslim people of the Caucasus. Uh, at the same time, you have his probable sense of guilt that he was not actually oppressed himself, which is actually a profile that you see in, with many, many of these terrorists. If any attackers are prompted by narrative, as you say, what role does theatricality play in how they decide to operate? Well, the theater from the early 70s, when the Palestinian terrorist movements were at their height, there was a realization that you could take your cause and yourself and project yourself on the global screen. You could be famous around the world and you could make your cause famous around the world, but you could also make yourself as an individual famous around the world. And I think that that has uh, influenced a lot of these guys. I mean, it was very interesting when we were dissecting the 9-11 plots and what came before and what came after and looking at the movies that uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of 9-11, liked to watch. And he liked to watch uh, Roland Emmerich disaster movies like Independence Day or uh, even Godzilla because that sense of spectacular violence is what he wanted to project on the global stage. And, and that, in fact, became the measure for terrorists everywhere. Christopher, I got to say, I, I live across the street from a basketball court in the summer when it gets really hot here in Boston. I see kids doing slam dunk with the intention of smashing the glass on the backboard. I mean, I could see testosterone narrative and theater fitting into that as well. Are you saying that the same dynamics are at play? Yeah. I mean, thankfully, you can have all those dynamics in play, and it doesn't necessarily mean people will be terrorists. But what I wanted to get away from in this article in The Daily Beast, and also just I think we ought to get away from in our analysis, is that the idea is that, that terrorism is founded in some verse or other of the Quran or in the faith of Islam, or for that matter, in the Catholic faith or the Hindu faith or what, what have you. All of those can be used basically to aid and abet the creation of that narrative. But most of the people who are actually involved in terrorist acts are not, I mean, far from it, religious scholars. They tend to sort of cherry pick the things that they think reinforce what they already want to do, which is identify with an oppressed people, say that they are fighting for them and project themselves on the world stage. Christopher Dickey, the Paris bureau chief and Middle East editor for Newsweek and The Daily Beast. Christopher, thank you. Thank you. As investigators try to understand what may have motivated the Sarnayev brothers, they're trying to find out what websites these suspects had visited lately and what online videos they'd watched or posted. Rita Katz is with Site Intelligence, which monitors radical jihadist websites. What has your organization discovered about Johar and Tamerlan Sarnayev? What were they into? There's no doubt that the Internet did play a very important role because several of the older, rather, YouTube pages are linked to jihadi videos that are posted on the Internet. And the fact that his YouTube is populated with links to jihadi sites or uh, Islamic radical sites like the Chechen's video of Abu Dajana, a radical militant Chechen leader who was killed by the Russian, uh, strongly illustrate that they had Internet influence. And, and, you know, nowadays it's really not surprising. I can't find one cell that has been exposed in recent years that was not inspired or radicalized also by the Internet. It plays such an important role today that you really don't have to go to any training camps in order to get yourself ready for an attack. 
In, in the case of the Tsarnaev brothers, is it a mixed bag what they were watching? Was it only jihadi websites? Were there any innocuous links or postings? Uh, no, it was a mixed max. I mean, Jahar himself, the younger brother who's currently in the hospital, we don't know about uh, any radical messages or postings that he had. His Twitter page is relatively as a normal American individual Twitter page with friends that all talking about secular and normal issues, daily current events, nothing special. However, the brother, the older brother, his YouTube channel is more influenced with radical and, and links to radical videos. And based on what they were both looking at, what does this tell you about them? I, mean, I can't really tell about Jahar that much, but the older brother, uh, look at his YouTube channel, there is very little doubt that the individual has been influenced by radical uh, jihadi propaganda online. But to this moment, we haven't been able to find him because the people use different personas to hide their true identity. But I will not be surprised if he was actually involved in the online jihadi community, the primary source of al-Qaeda material, where not only that is populated with al-Qaeda material in Arabic or al-Qaeda in, in Yemen and Algeria, but it also have a lot of propaganda from the Russian, uh, the Chechen jihadists translated to English. And when you look at the manual of the bomb that these two individuals executed, it contains everything basically you need for executing your own lone wolf attack. Now, these members reside somewhere, and they reside in various places, whether in the U.S., in Europe, Canada, and other locations. The threat of domestic jihadi cells will continue to exist for a long time, as long as the Internet exists. Rita Katz with Sight Intelligence. Very good to speak with you. Thanks. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. We're closely following the ongoing investigation of the Boston Marathon bombings. Get the latest about what we're learning by following us on Twitter, at PRI The World, and see what I'm reading and thinking about on the story. Follow me at Marco Werman. Traumatic events of the kind seen in the Boston area in the past week affect people in different ways. Survivors and witnesses might face lifetime scars. Another group of people that might be vulnerable are refugees from violent trouble spots around the world. Alexandra Weber is director of behavioral health at one of the main refugee assistance agencies in Boston, the International Institute of New England. For most of the people that we serve, they're coming to the U.S. in order to rebuild their lives in safety. And often they're coming because their lives have not been safe in other countries, and that's how they gain access to the U.S. resettlement program. For most people, this means that they've undergone significant traumatic and war experiences in the past, so that a bombing of this type at a point in their life where they feel like they've left those experiences behind can really re-trigger the emotional response and the stress response they've had in the past. And that's what's known as re-traumatization. They've experienced this before and then they get re-traumatized when something like this happens in Boston. Right. So, you know, trauma is really any initial response to a stressful event, um, but that usually involves a threat to someone's life or their safety or the life and safety of another person. And then for people who 
have a complicated emotional reaction, they, you know, they can develop post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a severe anxiety disorder that develops after exposure to psychological trauma. Um, for the people who have that condition, and some of whom we know and we work with, we're particularly concerned that the experiences of and, and situation last week will re-trigger some of the symptoms of traumatic response. Have you seen any of that yet? We have. Um, for most people, we've, in the last, the end of last week and the beginning of this week, we've been reaching out to just try to make sure that they're, you know, feeling safe, that we acknowledge that we've all been through this experience together. We're trying to gauge what their stress level is and make sure that we're supporting them in, in our outreach. But the events of last week for some have exacerbated symptoms of PTSD, anxiety, depression. Many people have had real sleep disturbance, flashbacks. Many are experiencing nightmares. Um, and for the, mo the majority of people who, who have these symptoms, they will resolve. But for those who have had a complicated traumatic stress reaction, those are the people for whom we're, we're, we're most concerned. And just to be clear, we're not talking uh, about clients of yours who were at the finish line and witnesses. They just heard about it or saw it on TV, right? You know, we have worked with many, many people across the Boston area, and we help people uh, integrate into uh, communities all across Boston. So we have had um, conversations with some of our clients. I was talking to someone just the other day who had been here for just a couple of months, and she took her family and one of their first outings to the marathon. Um, and for her and her family, this was, a, you know, a, a terrible experience. Um, and they were okay. They returned home okay. But, you know, they came from a war experience. And this was, you know, in, in no way what they were expecting. Alexandra Weber is a social worker with one of the main refugee assistance agencies in Boston, the International Institute of New England. Alexandra, thanks for taking the time out of your schedule today. Sure. Thanks for talking with me. Still to come on The World, a song so bad the producer backed away from it on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A senior Israeli military official today claimed that the Syrian government has used chemical weapons, and not just once, according to this official, but several times in recent months. If that is true, it could mean that Bashar al-Assad's government has crossed a red line drawn by the Obama administration. The world's Matthew Bell has been following the story from Jerusalem. Matthew, tell us what Israeli General Itai Brun said today. Marco, this is a top military intelligence official speaking publicly at a national security conference today in Tel Aviv. And he said, just as you characterized, that the Syrian government has used chemical weapons several times in recent months. He said it was probably sarin gas. He said this was the assessment of the Israeli military. He didn't give any specific data or, or any evidence of this. But he also went on to say that allowing the government of Bashar al-Assad to use such deadly weapons without some kind of response is a mistake. He said this would send the message that this could be legitimate. 
Now, that could be seen as a reference, as you mentioned, to the red line drawn by President Obama. The White House has said that the use of chemical weapons in Syria would be a game changer and it would force Washington to rethink its options. Given the possible consequences of citing this red line that Syria has used chemical weapons, without evidence, that's highly provocative. This is a military official, though, who might just be giving some cold analytical uh, assessment that's been drawn up by, by military intelligence officials without the sort of diplomatic niceties. The question is, was it cleared by the Israeli government? And is this a message that, that the Israeli government is trying to send to A, Syria, to the government of Assad, and perhaps B, to the West and to Washington as well? So what does Israel want Washington to do? Do they want Washington to get more deeply involved in Syria? Israeli officials are pretty careful when it comes to giving advice publicly to Washington in such a complicated situation like in Syria. But Israeli officials are clear about their own red lines, and the general today was as well. They say that they will not hesitate to act militarily if they see chemical or anti-aircraft weapons being transferred to Hezbollah forces in Lebanon or to terrorist groups inside Syria. One Israeli expert on Syria I talked with today said that, look, Russia and Iran have no qualms about supporting Syria's military. Meanwhile, the U.S. has been very slow to get involved. He said, from his perspective, Washington does not appear to have figured out what its Syria policy is and that the Israelis would love to hear the Obama administration be more clear about that, what its goals are and what it wants to do in Syria. So if chemical weapons use in Syria is a red line for Washington, what have you heard from Washington today about General Bruin's comments? I think they're going to be playing this very carefully. The Obama administration says that it takes this issue very seriously. The United Nations has people on the ground in Syria that are conducting tests and trying to figure out what happened, specifically with an incident that happened in Aleppo province in late March. I talked to a defense analyst in Washington today. He said the comments today from the Israeli military are significant, but but they don't add up to a smoking gun just yet, and that the White House is going to be very, very careful as it proceeds to figure out what happened, if chemical weapons were used, by whom, and what was the purpose in using them. Matthew Bell, the world's Middle East correspondent, speaking with us from Jerusalem. As always, thanks, Matthew. You're welcome, Marco. Our GeoQuiz today tests your knowledge of royalty. So can you name the country where Crown Prince Willem and Princess Maxima will soon become king and queen? The celebrations get underway next week. The inauguration committee has even commissioned a king's song to mark the occasion. But tens of thousands of people have signed an online petition saying they don't like it. And many are threatening to leave this low-lying country if the songs used in the ceremony to honor what will be the country's first king in more than a century. No word on what the 75-year-old abdicating queen Beatrix thinks about the song and its rap lyrics. We're back with the answer later in the program. Our next story is about Iceland. 
The island holds a national parliamentary election on Saturday. The last one was in 2009, right after the collapse of Iceland's banking industry. The country was an early victim of the global financial crisis, and Icelanders are still grappling with the aftermath of a very deep recession. Politically, that means voters are leaning toward big change again. In 2009, they threw out the party that had ruled Iceland for almost two decades. Now it's estimated that about one in two voters are planning to switch party affiliation again from how they voted four years ago. This next item, though, is about something Icelanders have discovered they largely agree on. Here, let me turn the mic over now to Icelandic musician Oliver Arnolds and a story he told me recently that illustrates that. We were building a concert hall in the middle of the economy bubble and then everything crashed and the concert hall went to a halt and nothing happened at the construction site for like two years. Um, They realized it was more expensive to tear it down than finish it, actually. But by finishing it, they started putting more focus on the art itself and less focus on how much money the house was going to make. And it actually saved it from becoming a mall, (laughs) honestly. Oliver Arnold says it wasn't just that concert hall. The banking crisis changed attitudes in Iceland. The banking crisis has actually helped arts. Um, People have been forced to realize that money isn't everything and we have to enjoy non-material things in our lives um, when we don't have as much money. And those are actually better than the material things in our lives. So they're more important. Oliver Arnolds has a new recording out for Now I Am Winter. He says it wasn't directly influenced by the banking crisis, but he does feel his muse now benefits from a fresh wave of support for the arts in Iceland. The Icelandic government and um, a lot of government institutions have realized that the main flow of money into Iceland is directly related to the output of music and arts from Iceland. Really? So one of the ways... Yeah, yeah, I mean, they actually did this research about... Uh, actually, with Americans coming to Iceland. Um, it was just a question, like, where did you hear about Iceland first? Or um, why did you originally want to go to Iceland? And the most common answer, which was more common than the nature and the landscape, was music. And so they, they have actually started... Um, to try to help the country build from its ruin and ruins in a way, they have actually put more money into music and arts than before because they realized what they put into it, they get tenfold back. Music from Oliver Arnold's new CD, For Now, I Am Winter. News headlines from around the globe are next. You're listening to The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, remembering V. Kadude, a Tanzanian musician who didn't let her advanced age slow her down. When she finished playing, she unstrapped herself from this massive drum walked down the stairs, got a packet of cigarettes out, cracked open a bottle of beer and started worrying the young boys. And I thought, well, that's my hero. 
WBRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The crimes of the two young men must not be the justification for prejudice against Muslims or against immigrants. That was Cardinal Sean O'Malley at his mass this past Sunday here in Boston. He was speaking, of course, about the Boston Marathon bombing suspects, brothers Tamerlan and Jokar Tsarnaev, ethnic Chechen immigrants to this country. The surviving suspect, Jokar, has reportedly indicated to officials that he and his older brother were motivated by extremist Islamic beliefs. Investigators are still working to verify that. But in any case, for some young Muslims who've come of age in a post-9-11 America, the traumatic events of the last week are a reminder of a new normal. The world's Nina Porzuki has that story. Alexandra Minter, a sophomore at Tufts University, was working on a video for her Arabic class last Monday when her classmate stopped to check Facebook. Oh my gosh, there's an attack at the Boston Marathon. Nobody would have thought this would have happened. It was very caught by surprise. And then once people started making you know, accusations as to who it was, we're sitting here and I'm telling the girl next to me, I'm like, I really hope it wasn't a Muslim. Minter's is not a typical story. Growing up in rural Wisconsin, her mother converted from Christianity to Islam after marrying her stepfather, who was from Morocco. While Minter accepted her mother's conversion, the teasing began at her school. People knew at my middle school and elementary school, and I got called Arabian girl. And But about a year ago, Minter decided to convert, too. When she first put on a hijab, things changed. Only having been Muslim for a little over a year, I've already gotten profiled around Boston or back home. And, you know, what do you mean? I mean, I've had people ask me really weird questions on bus stops or on buses before or, you know, just get very uncomfortable and get up from seats on the train. And I wear a headscarf. So apparently that automatically means, you know, Muslim, which a lot of people create like fear more that it's going to happen more now. Those second looks on the bus and Minter's hope that the Boston bombers weren't Muslim. None of it surprises her classmate Chowdhury Shamsh head of Tufts Muslim Student Association. It's not going to stop, unfortunately. Like, this is something that she has to live with. Shams grew up in New York City. He was only 10 years old when the Twin Towers were attacked. I was a fifth grader, so all I could see was, you know, like a little plane maybe, like, bouncing off the tower. It was a turning point, not just in his life in the U.S., but as an American Muslim. After 9-11, all that changed. We were, you know, model minority and all that stuff, and... Nobody thought twice about, you know, having a Muslim sit next to them on the train. Shams says his mother warned him about becoming a Muslim leader on campus, practicing his faith so openly. He was just saying, why can't you just, you know, just practice and, you know, just keep it in your room and <laughs> don't be too open about it. That pressure to stay under the radar, Shams says, makes him feel like a part of a group that's supposed to feel culpable somehow. I don't know how much of it is in my head because of, like, the media <laughs> and the portrayal. It might be internalized. It might not be real. You know, I, I'm still wearing Nikes and I'm still, you know, just dressed like everyone else, but I do feel different just because of this, my, the color of my skin or my religion. When news broke about the bombing, 
the media went into overdrive, hypothesizing about who did this. The suspect was a dark-skinned male. Right. We can't say whether the person spoke with a foreign accent or an American The Saudi accent. national had ties. No American citizen blows up random people. That's a Middle Eastern scene. That's not an American scene. When our crazies go off, they, they target the government. The way that our even justice system and media um, talk about instances based on the identity and race or religion of the person who's the perpetrator is also something I think that feeds into why our community fears backlash. Linda Sarsour heads the National Network for Arab American Communities in New York. Minutes after the bombing, her 14-year-old son texted her asking, Mom, who did it? It kind of brought me back to like the post 9-11 days and thinking about, you know, what my son, son thinks the consequences are or would be on him or his sisters or people in our families. And it's hard for me to tell kids that it, it will be better because every time I say that, something really terrible happens and it gets kids back to the mindset of, you know, why do these people hate us? It's really, for me, even traumatizing for as an adult to make to not be able to tell young people that they are safe and that that everything will be OK. But Shreen Shafi an undergraduate studying international affairs at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, sees a silver lining. I had to respond to people's attacks and stuff, so that kind of led me to, like, you know, look more into the faith itself and also just the history surrounding it. Shafi's parents, doctors, came to the U.S. from Pakistan 20 years ago. Shafi feels angry, angry at the brothers who attacked people, at the racial profiling of Muslims, at the fear she's felt these past few days when heading outside alone. But it's more complicated than pure anger. People were angry at, like, Osama bin Laden for, like, making Muslims look bad. And I think that's generally how I felt when I was younger. But at this point, I think because these kids were at least the younger brother, just kind of like your average teenager, I feel more sad that somebody would be driven to do this than I do feel angry at the way that they make Muslims look. I guess I'm upset that people are kind of extrapolating from them to the broader community. Their sadness, but each student was also quick to point to a hopeful future. Shams, the Muslim student leader at Tufts, he put it like this. America's not perfect, but the beautiful thing about America is always room for improvement. How very American. For the world, I'm Nina Porzuki in Boston. As the investigation continues into the Sarnayev brothers and the role their faith may have played in the Boston bombings of a week ago, many Muslims have expressed concern about misperceptions of their religion. Hear more from the Muslim Americans featured in Nina's report and how they are dealing with what they call Islamophobia in the wake of the bombings. We've posted those stories at theworld.org. The government of Myanmar is conducting peace talks with the Karen National Unity Army, or KNU, For the past year, the KNU has been waging a war against the Burmese state for some 65 years. Its goal is more autonomy for the Karen ethnic population in the country. The conflict has displaced some 500,000 ethnic Karen over the decades, and Karen communities can be found all over the world, including here in the U.S. Reporter Andrew Parsons caught up with one major community in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Kedamu Jula's sketchbooks and paintings are stashed all over the counseling office at Chapel Hill High School. It's a tiny, cramped space. But Kedamu, a lean 19-year-old wearing an oversized Chicago Bulls hat, doesn't seem to notice. Nothing compares to the refugee camp in Thailand. His English is still rough, so he lines up three notebooks on the table to make his point. This is my friend, Mom, and this is me, this is my friend, Liv. So 
Thailand, like hard to live. It's nothing to eat. Thailand shows up a lot in Kedamu's art. He spent nearly a decade there, from age two to twelve. He and his family had fled their village in Myanmar, also known as Burma. A long war raged on between the government and the Karen ethnic group to which Kedamu belongs. Kedamu's memories of that time show up in his sketches, landscapes filled with refugee tents, a hospital, a school, and a single tree with a grim story. That girl was like dying on this day. She killed herself with a rope. Around the tree? Yep. Why? I don't know. For about three years, art therapy has helped Kedamu process his journey. And he isn't alone here in Orange County, North Carolina, where about 1,000 Korean refugees now call home. And it's a community often battling depression, anxiety, or post-traumatic stress. That keeps therapist Hillary Rubinson busy. 90% of my clients are refugees from Burma at this point. When Kedamu started high school here in 2009, he'd been in the U.S. for almost two years. He barely knew English. His ESL teacher, Courtney George, remembers him struggling. He seemed very, very angry. When I would see him by seventh period, you could see just that the day was just wearing on him, and you know he would either have an outburst or you know get into some kind of altercation with another student in the class, or you know would storm off very dramatically. Kedemu's identity is important to him. His notebooks have the initials BK and a red and blue rising sun, the Karen flag scattered across them, B for blood and K for Karen. But other Burmese ethnic groups live here too, so Kedamu will get called Burmese. It still bothers him. I hate what they call us Burmese. Like, Burmese people kill a lot of Korean people already. His own blood, literally, is also on his mind. When he was a baby in Burma, his mother snuck him from their village without the Korean army noticing. They went to a government-controlled city. Kedamu needed a blood transfusion for his anemia, His therapist has helped convince Kedemu that new blood now runs through his veins. But his mother, Kukujula, explains through a translator that it still comes up a lot. Some of his friends are teasing him and say that, Kedemu, your blood is coming from Burmese soldiers. That's why his identity as a Karen is very important. On a recent Saturday, Kuku is up early cooking while her two youngest children play outside. They live in a Chapel Hill housing project. It's her day off. She works night shifts as a cleaner at the University of North Carolina. But today she's prepping a large, traditional Karen meal. Outside, whole fish sizzle in a skillet. Her life is so different than in Burma. She's about to buy a new home, away from the projects. But she still remembers trekking to the refugee camp after the Burmese army seized their land. During uh, our journey, I remember that two or three children died on the way because of maybe something wrong with food or not enough food. Now her concerns are different, like how she'll pay for her kid's college. But she does worry less about Kedamu. She notes that his art therapy sessions help. He studies more and assists after-school Karen language classes for younger refugees. One of my friends sang this song. The other day, back at school, Kedemu plays me some rap music that his friend made in the Karen language. The song is about fighting, something Kedemu is trying to avoid. 
So it's almost like if you want to do something, just step up and be a man. Yeah, if you want to do, like, if you want to find me, just fight to our death. That's what the song about. Ketamu wants to become a U.S. Marine. Like the song suggests, going all the way, stepping up, and being a man. But for now, that means staying in school, graduating, and channeling any anger onto a sketchbook. For the world, I'm Andrew Parsons in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. For our geo-quiz, we were looking for a European country that will soon inaugurate a new king and where a specially commissioned king's song has sparked tons of complaints from people who just don't like the tune. Crown Prince Willem Alexander is set to become the next king of the Netherlands next week, and so the Netherlands is the answer to our geo-quiz. Jan Roos is a journalist in the Netherlands. Uh, Jan, tell us about this King song, or uh, Koningslied. Just how bad is it? There's always a song uh, which got very bad uh, lyrics, but some good music. And you got some songs uh, with, well, good music and, and bad lyrics, but this is all bad. It's the worst. Why? I mean, d- describe the lyrics first. Well, the first the phrase is, uh, well, here you stand. Just like, uh, like our new king is a, is a little boy. He doesn't know what he has to do, and he's just standing there, you know, and that's not very friendly for our new king. That's <laughs> unbelievable baby language. It's, it's like a not very smart child wrote it. It's just as poor as my English. Is one of the lyrics really, I will build a dike with my bare hands and keep the water away? Yes, and that's not the stupidest, stupidest lyric. We got some like the W from waking up and eating a messed potato. We have some strange uh, traditions here in Holland, but... I don't know anybody uh, who is uh, eating mashed potato in the morning. Who, who came up with this? Well, um, the big boss uh, is uh, John Eubank. He he wrote some Dutch uh, songs already, and well, he was always successful. But now, uh, yeah, he's he's uh, yeah. Everybody uh, wants him uh, to hang. <laughs> well, I mean, he he's a Brit. One would think that he would know a little something about songs for royalty, but it seems like he got it all wrong. Yeah. He got it all wrong, and you know they they want to do something like uh, "We Are the World," you know, the song with Michael Jackson. But there's a problem: we don't have a Dutch Michael Jackson. It's a couple of uh, people uh, who don't have any talent and are singing a very bad song. No, and the t- worst part of it is the rap. Personally, I think rap is not my style, but the Dutch rap is something to cry about. What would the the singers have to say about that? Well, they uh, will say that I'm a cynical bastard or something like that. (laughs) And they may be right, but the thing is, in, in Holland... So almost everything you do with the king or the queen is celebrated in this country. So the producers of this song, well, they thought that everybody would cheer and and celebrate this king song. But it's unbelievable awful. Not sure you really want that song at your crowning. Well, I think uh, it's a little bit too much. Uh, If that is our biggest problem here in Holland, then we will live in a very safe and nice country. And I think uh, that... Well, if, if you see uh, the problems you have uh, over there in Boston, this is a really small, small deal, we call it. Yeah, see, you're not such a cynical bastard after all, as you say. Well, I, I'm still a cynical bastard, but uh, well, I want to say something nice, too. Jan Roos, very good to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Bye.
Sometimes I'm glad I don't understand the lyrics. You're listening to The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Okay, baseball and cycling, those sports have seen big doping scandals. Horse racing, for the most part, has kept a relatively clean reputation, but now it's taken a massive hit, as the world's Alex Galifant reports. Earlier this month, 45 horses from a stable in England were tested for illegal doping. Now the results are in. 11 of those horses tested positive for anabolic steroids. What makes the news shocking for horse racing is the stable in question, an operation called Godolphin. Godolphin is not one of the major stables of the world. It is the major stable of the world. That's Cornelius Lysett, the BBC's racing correspondent. Godolphin in the UK is the crown jewel in a global breeding and training empire owned by the ruling family of Dubai, the Maktoums. It's overseen by Dubai's monarch, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum. Godolphin was founded in the mid-1990s, and the stable trains and breeds some of the best horses in the world, running them in Britain, Europe, and the United States. Sheikh Mohammed has a breeding center in Kentucky, too. They've raised the bar in that they, they had all these good horses, winning lots of good prizes, and setting new standards, which makes the, the news all the more surprising, really. This stage is caught flat-footed, certifies the one, however, that's dashed for home into the dip and opened up a break. A that horse, Certify, running last year, is the biggest name among the 11 from the Godolphin stable that have tested positive for steroids. The horse is currently unbeaten. It's won almost a quarter of a million dollars in prize money so far and was the favorite for a major race next month. Now Certify won't be allowed to run and any punters who've placed pre-race bets will lose their money. The trainer at the center of the doping scandal is Mahmoud Al-Zaruni. According to the rules of racing, he's ultimately responsible for what's happened, and he is taking responsibility, claiming that he thought the prohibition on steroids didn't apply to training periods as opposed to actual racing. That's raised some eyebrows. It's crystal clear what the rules are. Uh, they're just not allowed. Al-Zaruni will face a disciplinary hearing in the next few days. In any case, says BBC Racing correspondent Cornelius Lysett, the affair is hugely embarrassing for Sheikh Mohammed himself. Godolphin is him. Godolphin is his baby. Godolphin was his invention. It's been very much one of the talking points of Godolphin that the Sheikh is a, a hands-on boss. He is known as the boss. There's no suggestion of any sort that he has done anything uh, wrong as far as this particular incident is concerned. But it's clearly embarrassing because he's a hands-on man who likes to be fully involved. And this would appear to have been taking place under his nose. Most of Godolphin's horses spend the British winter in Dubai, training in the sun where Sheikh Mohammed can see them personally. This is music from a video put out by Dubai's media office, showing the sheikh examining horses, checking the strapping on their legs and feeling their heartbeats. Indeed, Dubai has used thoroughbred horse racing to burnish its reputation for luxury sports and leisure. Now, in the racing world at least, that reputation needs some cleaning up. For The World, I'm Alex Caliphant. Finally today, we want to let you know about an extraordinary musician who died last week. Her name was B. Kidude. She was a singer and drummer from Tanzania's Zanzibar Island region, and she was believed to be more than 100 years old, though no one knew her exact age. One thing that was certain, though, she was the undisputed doyenne of Tarab, a kind of music popular in Zanzibar. DJ Rita Ray helped produce a documentary on B. Kidude called As Old As My Tongue. 
The first time I saw Bika Dude was when I went to Zanzibar for the Zanzibar International Film Festival. I was the festival DJ. And there on the stage was this tiny old woman with a massive Ngoma drum strapped to her chest. And then above it all was this raucous, bawdy voice. And it was like watching the original girl group. There she was, bossing the beat, playing these drums. She had her two little filler drummers beside her and then her all-girl group dancers. And I was absolutely entranced. But then what really got me was when she finished playing, she unstrapped herself from this massive drum. Never mind waiting for roadies. She picked it up, walked down the stairs, put her drum down carefully, got a packet of cigarettes out, cracked open a bottle of beer and started worrying the young boys. And I thought, well, that's my hero. Bikadu Day was the doyen of Zanzibar's musical heritage. She embodied their culture, their musical culture, especially when it came to Tarab music. Tarab music is a blend of Arabic, African, Indian, and indeed Persian music. Bikudude started playing the drums around the age of 10. Nobody knows exactly because there's no birth certificate, but we know that she was playing in the 1920s and she ran away to learn to play the drums. It wasn't something that women did. When we went to Zanzibar just two months ago in February, we went because we'd heard disturbing news of Bikadude being unwell, so we went. And when we went, indeed she was ill. She was very, very ill. But there was a very strange thing that happened where when she was reintroduced to the environment that she was used to, that is an environment of music and creativity, somehow she was able to push aside the illness and come through. So, in fact, I saw her at a rehearsal. The change was absolutely remarkable. She walked in, she was holding court, she was singing, she was telling people off, she had people in fits of laughter. She was loved till the end, really. Loved until the end, indeed. That was DJ Rita Ray remembering the Tarab musician B. Kedude, 
She died last week at her home on the Tanzanian island of Zanzibar. Check out scenes from the documentary on Bika Dude and watch her recent collaboration with a Tanzanian hip-hop group. We've posted those videos and more at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International